0: Continuing in our study of Revelation, we're going to get the first part of chapter 14 this morning. As we've mentioned before, the New Testament's very clear that Jesus Christ will return to earth someday. We can all say an amen to that. Amen. But we don't know when. Jesus is pretty emphatic about that part, too. And it will be sudden. So that's another little thing that kind of gets to us. When that happens, as we're, gonna, as we're seeing in Revelation, and in other scriptures as well, people will experience a body re- bodily resurrection in order to face final judgment, which will be followed by one of two things. An invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, or the second death. And the current creation that we have around us will be redeemed in the form of a new heaven and a new earth. The imagery of Revelation doesn't stray outside those truths. When we try to make it do so, we make it something it isn't. We should not expect to find any hidden information about when Jesus returned, the precise nature of the judgment, those exact dates of things. That's not what's in there. What we can expect to find in Revelation, in these sometimes bizarre and shocking images... Uh, is an affirmation of the fallen nature of humanity, an affirmation of the character of God and of the Lamb, or Jesus, and the promise of ultimate justice. Those things we can know. So let's take a look at where we are in Revelation. We're going to get the big picture up here. You know, this is the biggest challenge of this whole job right here. <laughs> I think I don't think my ears are made right. Okay. So we're in these visions of inevitable outcome. Marty took us through chapter thirteen, uh, talking about the woman and the dragon, and the dragon is beasts we're going to get into 14, the Lamb is chosen, then we'll be doing Proclamation of Angels, the Son of Man, and the Harvest of the Earth. There's all kinds of things that are happening in here. Um, some commentators look at 14 as another interlude. Uh, I, I think it's better to see it as a section here. <laughs> Apologize. Keep this on. Anybody know how to operate this? <laughs> All right. <laughs> <clears throat> it might help. It might help. I think it'd just be kind of dangling around here, hitting things if I did that. so Okay, enough of this show. Uh, the <laughs> I don't think it's an interlude. I think that these th- three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, are a big part of, chap- of the whole structure of Revelation because when we get to those, we're halfway through. If you take the count of the Greek text, word count, Uh, just as judgment pieces from 6 through 20, chapter 14 falls right in the middle. If you add the the seven letters and the prologue and the uh, epilogue on the end of it, it's about chapter 13. So we're maybe over halfway now getting through Revelation. Now, I know there's a a rumor going around that... uh, I look for a chiastic structure under every scriptural rock. Um, I just want to remind us what D.A. Carson wrote about that. He said, those who spoke Semitic languages commonly framed chiasms as part of their speech patterns. It was a thought form. It was not just a literary way of looking at things. And so consistent with that, I actually have one we can look at here in this chapter. Now the value of these of uh, realizing these structures are here is it gives us an opportunity. As one of the intentions of it is you compare the different pairs. So A goes with A prime and B with B prime, and those things often will communicate. Maybe a contrast. Maybe some additional information. Uh, maybe it complements it in some way. Um, But that's the idea is that as the first century readers of Revelation came across things like this and they had this ability to hear these things much better than we do. We have to kind of see it in writing to really get a hold of it. Um, They would then accept this challenge from the reader or the hearer or the speaker and look for those comparisons and use those to try to help understand and interpret what the text had to say. We'll do that as we go through this, but we aren't going to get all the way, but just past halfway this morning. So we'll come back and do a little bit more of that next time. But for right now, we want to look at this first part of the vision. One verse. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I don't know whether they're shaking like that when they're all standing up there. but The opening vision was of the Lamb. Remember, the Lamb is the central character in the whole drama of Revelation. And there's an intentional contrast here between the two beasts that we saw in chapter 13. It says, The Lamb stood on Mount Zion. Uh, the significance of this uh, we can look at a, in the number of there's a number of references to Zion in the Old Testament, of course, and there's some in the New Testament. But Psalm 2 particularly is important to this, and I actually got the psalm, whole Psalm up here. Hopefully, you can see most of it or read it in your own Bible. There it says, "Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth." there's a whole bunch of stuff in there you could find in Revelation. So this is often the case with these things. But this whole psalm, um, we've seen it other places. If you remember back a year or two ago when we did Hebrews, there's uh, several references to Psalm 2 there. In fact, there's probably about 18 to 20 allusions or direct quotes from Psalm 2 in the New Testament. Uh, Depending on how you count them, four or five of them are in Revelation. The lamb is shown with the 144,000. Now, we've encountered them before, back in chapter 7, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, as I've noted before in the imagery and the way of thinking, particularly in the time period and the Jews and, and especially, the forehead was the center or the place of your perspective or your worldview. So these people have the worldview. Stamped on their forehead of the Father and of the Lamb. These are the same hundred forty-four thousand in chapter seven, like I said, who are kind of arrayed in ranks like an army, and uh, they're just they're, there. They won the battle, mm-hmm. emulating their uh, suffering witness of their commander, and they are identified in chapter seven as the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now we've uh, taken the position that. Great Tribulation is everything from the resurrection of Jesus to the return of Jesus. So you got a whole bunch of uh, things included in that. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In the New Testament, you can find the word Zion, the name Zion, uh, seven places, but only two have this full kind of place named Mount Zion. Of course, one of them is right here in, in Revelation, but the other one I think you'll find interesting and may recall, is in Hebrews 12. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We're gonna see a lot more about Zion, the idea of Mount Zion in chapters 21 and 22 when we talk about the, the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and the, and the temple that is not there. Anyway, the, uh, it was a place of refuge for the people of God in both the Old and the New Testament. And it's always, Zion always refers to the dwelling of God when you see it. <clears throat> Next John shifts his vision I've talked before about they start the vision start, I saw, I heard, I saw, I saw, I heard. those are all little signals to tell us we're going to a new vision. And it's the next couple verses, 14, two and three, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harps, harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. I think the translation found in most English Bibles has uh, I heard a sound rather than I heard a voice. Uh, the ESV here has chosen to take a different tact on that um, And it kind of stands apart that way. I I think the other ones are better. I think sound is makes more sense here. It's a choice made by the translators to how they were going to do the Greek word phone. But sounds familiar: telephone, cell phone, phonograph, phonetics. All of our English words come from that. Um, But it can be any type of sound, including a human voice. So. I think that if you have sound here, I think in terms of sound, it makes a little more sense because we have that sound defined not as a single voice, but as a company of the redeemed who are singing. And so I think it's, uh, makes it makes a little clearer if you just put sound in there instead of voice. It's also less likely to be confused of the uh, standard New Testament imaging or usage of a voice from heaven or a voice from cloud as being the singular voice of God. In this case, the sound was loud. Uh, it's compared with the sound of many waters. Um, if you've ever had occasion to go to a really significant waterfall, and the closer you get to it, the louder it gets. Uh, in fact, we refer to them as thunderous falls sometimes. The, or, or a river that's very, the r- water's high, and uh, lots of rapids. Uh, it can be deafening, the sounds of those things can be. It's also uh, likened to thunder. Um, continuous rumbling of thunder, not just a crack here and there, but, I mean, this is going on all the time. But the sound was also like, and this is a literal translation, harpists harping on their harps. <laughs> the, uh, which seems like a whole different kind of sound than what you see in these other two things. It's not the first time we've seen harps, that appear in the worship of heaven and back in chapter 5 the 24 elders were, uh, have a picture of they, they fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sing a new song here in chapter 14 we have the redeemed with the harps as will also be the case in the beginning of chapter 15 we'll see him again and they were singing a new song we have that phrase again And it was a song that could only be learned by the redeemed. And the Old Testament, a new song, was always associated with a victory over enemies. Uh, If you look at, like, for example, the Exodus, as soon as the people of Israel got through the Red Sea on the other side and it closed back over on the Egyptian armies, what did Moses and the people of Israel do? They sung a song. Uh, Psalmist, David as a psalmist, As a great example of this, is stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me and deliver me from many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a ten string harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David and his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of the foreigners, whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Psalm 144 includes harps, as well as this idea of a new song. And it also concerns the idea of truth and falsehood, which really becomes part of the next vision that we're going to look at here. But first of all, please note that the scenes that we have with the harps here don't show anybody sitting on a cloud playing a harp like in a cartoon. All right. In fact, the picture here of the redeemed calling them the 144,000 rather than the mult- multitude is really a picture of them in their military formations singing of the victory of the Lamb. It's a whole different kind of picture. It's like a marching band or something. The next section. The character of the redeemed. Sorry, I'm losing this thing again. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and their mouth ma- in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The description of the redeemed here, we're going to find out, gets paired with uh, verses. Uh, 12 and 13 we'll look at next week. Uh, But at this point in the text, we know that this is the same people that were mentioned in uh, the new song in verse 3, the same people standing with the Lamb of Mount Zion in verse 1. And then we find out what qualified them to be in these ranks. And John is told about four traits. First is they were not defiled with women for they were virgins. Now the word translated defiled here is only found in three places in the New Testament. Uh, One or the other one is in the message to Sardis. That's significant. And to Sardis, the message came in chapter 3, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The nature of the compromise in Sardis that it describes there was that they had a reputation for being alive, But they were really dead. It was all about appearances. It was all performative. Their works were not complete. They had forgotten Jesus could return at any moment. And they had risked being spiritually asleep when he came. In other words, they were living a lie. Which is where that connects with the idea of what we have here. The redeemed are also called virgins here. In the figurative language of Revelation... This is not a reference to some requirement for believers to be celibate, thankfully. I think most of us can agree. Sexual purity is a regular metaphor in the Old Testament for those who were faithful to God. And sexual immorality, especially adultery, was a metaphor for those who were unfaithful and engaged in idolatry. The trait of the redeemed as undefiled anticipates chapter 21 where an angel bids John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife, of the Lamb. That's what we're setting up here. Next, we learn that the redeemed follow the Lamb wherever he goes. As we have noted, the Lamb is the central character of this drama of Revelation, and his true disciples are those who follow without hesitation. The 144,000 are also called here the redeemed Second time we've seen that word now in the chapter. And as first fruits of God and the Lamb. Um, redeemed, the word means to cause s- or the release of something or the freedom of someone at great cost to the person that's buying this or paying for this. And that's the picture that we have here. Uh, this is how one is enrolled in the company of the redeemed. We're purchased or redeemed like a slave. Our, our freedom is uh, purchased for us. Um, they become the first fruits of God and the Lamb. Uh, it's the only use of first fruits in Revelation, but we have some other places where it's helpful for us. Paul was pretty fine, fond of this term. Uh, it can ma- mean several things depending on the context. In cases where it's referring to the first person, maybe, the first early believers, we have a couple of those. In fact, the ESV translates in Romans 16, uh, where Paul writes, uh, Greet my beloved Eponatus, who was the first convert of Christ in, a- in Asia. So that's the same word, first fruits," there. And in 1 Corinthians 16, he talks about st- uh, the household of Stephanus, who were the first converts in Achaia. Uh, Paul used the term metaphorically, as often found in other ancient literature of the time, to describe how a part can affect the whole if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, the whole lump is holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Christ himself is called the first fruits. Uh, raised from the dead, the first fruits are those who have fallen asleep, and but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then it is coming those belong to him. Finally, the word is used to speak of all believers in a more general sense. In chapter eight of Romans, Paul wrote and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. These things often refer, like this one, to this in time kind of picture that we're looking at. Uh, even James kind of gets in on this act. He talks about he us, brought us forth uh, by the word of truth, that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In the Old Testament, the practice was that the first fruits of the harvest or the firstborn were dedicated to the Lord uh, or offered to the Lord. Now, this wasn't like, okay, I've given God his, now I get the rest. The picture idea here was that everything in the harvest was God's. It all belonged to him. And this is a trait of the redeemed. That we have here, and and it echoes a prophecy in Jeremiah. That's interesting. The word of the Lord came to me saying, "Go and proclaim in uh, in the hearing of Jerusalem." Thus says the Lord: I remember the devotion of your youth, the love as a bride. You how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest. Similar kind of picture here to what we're looking at in Revelation. It talks about all who ate of it incurred guilt. Those were the ones who attacked Israel or tried to stand in their way. And disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Speaks of God's concern for those who are his. Uh, The rest of Jeremiah 2, though, goes on to remind and warn the people of the unfaithfulness of their ancestors of their current involvement in spiritual adultery, of their reliance on worldly power and wisdom instead of God, and of their systemic idolatry. So it wasn't necessarily good news for them, but there were warnings attached to that as well. The final trait of the redeemed is that in their mouth no lie was found. They were blameless. This trait goes beyond simply being honest or truthful although that stands in stark contrast to a lot of things around us, particularly today, I think. Uh, To be blameless means to be without defect, without blemish, without fault of any kind. It is an allusion to to the uh, redeemed that were identified here with their lamb, that they're following, because in Isaiah 53, this is a verse familiar with everybody, all we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Later on, though, a couple verses, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So they're emulating the one that they're following in this situation. In fact, there may be an allusion to Isaiah 53 by another prophet. In Zephaniah, There's a a pretty important intertext for this whole thing that I want to take a look at. It's a little little bit longer, but I think it's interesting. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds... By which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from you your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt in your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So to kind of summarize the character of the redeemed, four things. These are those who steadfastly resist idolatry of any kind, follow their Savior, whoever he may lead, Consider their dearly purchased freedom as a basis for God's ownership of them, and are resolutely committed to the truth and unblemished by falsehood. That's a pretty stiff set of, com- of qualifications, but it's one that is expected of those who have the Lamb's name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. So that shouldn't just describe the 144,000. That should describe us as well. A new vision is signaled by the, uh, John's words, and I saw. Uh, in it, three angels each make a proclamation. And the first and third do so with a loud voice. Got more noise here going on. Uh, which are brackets kind of that central part of the chiasm. But let's look at the first step, Proclamation. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. So does this proclamation indicate a final opportunity for those who dwell on the earth to repent? Well, some commentators think it does. Uh, I don't think it does. So you're going to get to hear my side of this, but there's no you know greater uh, point, number of points for which side to take on this one. But the I tend to think say no because of the context of it and some other things, and I'll go through those here real quick in the immediate context of John's vision in chapter 13, makes it clear there that that all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. There's no exceptions. And it says the authority was given, that little phrase dwell on the earth, and the authority was given to the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. So there doesn't seem to be indications there of any kind of change of allegiance. If we go back to chapter 10, um, recalling back there with, John was given a scroll to eat that was sweet as honey in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. <clears throat> and kind of the implications of that is that the message was a, primarily a message of bitterness. That was a long-lasting part. And then he was commissioned, again, to prophesy to these many peoples and nations and languages. So from chapter 10 onward, really, including chapter 10, This fourfold list of these groups, and there are seven of them in Revelation, all describe people who are judged. The next vision after chapter 10 is the one with the two witnesses that John has. uh, And they represent a faith the faithful church uh, taking the gospel to the world around them, even when it resulted in martyrdom and persecution. But aside from the announcements, of the birth and resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament, the good news is expected to be shared by God's people, not by angels. That's where the evangelism is supposed to be done. That's our job. It's not an angelic job. The proclamation of the angel here called for a response because the hour of his judgment has come. They're called to fear God and give him, give him glory in much the same way, I think, that those survivors of the earthquake following the resurrection of the two witnesses in chapter 11, who were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven, didn't do so because they repented and changed their mind. They did so because they were facing the reality of judgment. And this is really kind of goes along. Both of these are examples of what we found in the hymn in, in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Finally, the proclamation of this angel talks about an eternal gospel. This is kind of a different subject here, but I think this is important. That tells us a couple things about this gospel. One is that it's not new. It didn't just start 2,000 years ago. It's an eternal gospel. And that just points us to the work of Jesus as a second person in the Trinity that began before the foundations of the world and will continue in perpetuity after that. But it also speaks to us of judgment. John recorded the words of Jesus in his gospel uh, that extended his work to judgment. In John chapter 5, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the proclamation of the gospel or the good news was always intended to include this message of a coming judgment. Now we often leave that out when we think about it, when you hear it. But the idea of judgment was not just for people with a background in the Old Testament. it's for everybody to whom the, the message was going to be taken. And we see a great example of that because in Paul, in the, the book of Acts Uh, Chapter 17, Paul spoke to an audience of very pagan Athenians uh, gathered in the Arachipus to hear this new idea that Paul has. And he concluded this message with the words, And the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The gospel is eternal in many ways. It's eternal in its grace for the redeemed. But it's eternal in its punishment for those who refuse. And that's as much a part of the message. We don't like to go to that one. That's uncomfortable. In the next part of this vision, we see another angel, a second one, follows, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion uh, of her sexual immorality. Two things are of note here on this particular verse. First, it's a sudden introduction of Babylon. Where did Babylon come from in this whole thing? We haven't seen it yet anywhere. The second observation is that verse 8 is the central component or element of the chiasm. And in those structures, it's the most important. So why would that being introduced here be so important to us? Um, I think the reason is is kind of looking ahead. Because we're going to see Babylon now show up in chapter 16. It'll be the primary topic of chapter 17 and 18. And it represents some important things here in this whole picture of judgment. In chapter 13, we saw a picture, and and I think Marty did a great job on this the last couple weeks, uh, of political and religious power uh, being brought to bear on the church with a little hint of the economic in there about uh, you couldn't buy unless you had the mark of the beast. But in chapters 16 through 18, we'll be introduced to the fact that this power can also include military power, economic power, and cultural power. It's not just confined to those other two. And that's personified by Babylon. Now, we get to chapter 17, and we'll see what the relationship between the Babylon and the beast is, but I don't want really to get ahead of us. The double fallen here, and we see it again in 18, verse 2. Is an allusion to Isaiah 21:9, which says, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods shattered to the grounds. The implication is that Babylon had been falling from the beginning, and now it's done. The description of Babylon as she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality again uses this metaphor of sexual sin as a symbol for idolatry. And the phrase Babylon the Great becomes a symbol or a code phrase for any ungodly, arrogant, idolatrous, oppressive institution or system on the earth that stands against the creator. Like those portrayed in chapter 13, idolatry means much more than just worshiping the image of the beast described there. It extends to all aspects of society and life. The metaphor of drinking is developed from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this cup, the wine of wrath, and make it like all the nations to whom I send you, drink it. They shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. And then later on in Jeremiah, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken, The nations drank her wine, and therefore the nations went mad. There's a couple things I think we can get out of this. The first one is God is ultimately sovereign. He even uses Babylon to accomplish his ends. Uh, He's ultimately sovereign even over those who oppose him. And secondly, the Babylon serves as an image of how God, and this just really you know, reflects what we have in Romans chapter 1, how God gave up rebellious humanity to their suppression of the truth, to their embrace of a lie, to their sexual impurity, to their failure to honor God or give him thanks. In short, humanity chose to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Which brings us to the last part of this threefold vision, the proclamation of the third angel. And I kind of put the whole thing up there, that middle section. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead, or on his hand, sorry about the verse number, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is not a pleasant picture. All the coercive efforts of the beast... That allowed access to markets only to those who submitted to his mark. As Marty suggested last week, this idea of a mark does not require some kind of a physical mark or a tattoo or a stamp or whatever, a brand, whatever you want to think about. It's the symbolism of revelation. It only requires embracing the perspective and worldview of the beast. That's a lot less obvious. But those who do so will pay a very steep price. Their choice to drink along in the passion of the wine of the idolatry of Babylon will also require drinking the wine of God's wrath. The phrase translated, will be tormented here, is the same word that's used in chapter 11 to describe the dwellers on the earth who murdered the two witnesses and celebrated their death because those two prophets have been a torment to them. The phrase fire and sulfur is a stock biblical metaphor for judgment going all the way back to the destruction of Sodom. In Genesis 19, in fact, Jesus, speaking in the context of the last judgment, said, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. There's that sudden we were talking about. Beyond these highly symbolic passages, John is not given every detail of what the punishment will entail. The unbelieving, what they'll be suffering at this final judgment. But he does say that it goes on forever and ever, and those suffering the punishment have no rest. As with the visions throughout Revelation, we cannot really impose a chronology on these visions. Uh, particularly in chapter 14, I think we it's more consistent to see all three of these as a unit um, all three of the messages, the proclamations. And actually, the whole thing is a unit. I don't know if you've ever uh, had occasion to look at some of the medieval paintings or sculptures or wood carvings. Uh, they'll have these, particularly if they're biblical themes, they'll have a, a, a painting or a, something, that's a frame of some kind, and it's just got scenes all over it. You're seeing them all at once. That's kind of what Revelation is like. We're seeing this all at once, but there's all kinds of different things to look at in these pictures, in these images. There are different perspectives, different ways of saying and looking at the various things that are there. The eternal gospel and the call to fear God is made because Babylon has fallen. The punishment has been inflicted on those who worship the beast. It's almost done like it's done here. For now, I think we all need to acknowledge that uh, these graphic pictures of judgment uh, test our understanding of the character of God. They're not comfortable for us, and we very much tend to make God in our image, so we think they must not be comfortable for him either. Well, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about that next week a little more, but uh, if nobody shows up, I'll know why. Okay. <laughs> it's a test of our understanding of the character of God. So, what I'm going to do to close this morning is I'm going to read a quote from a commentator. And actually, the the guys with the harps and the voices can kind of come on and back up here. And I kind of want to read this in a prayerful way, so we can we can wrap it up with this. So yeah, go ahead. So you can you know just. Look at things, or you can close your eyes or just listen to this. I just think it's some good thoughts. This is from a New Testament theologian named Vern Poitras. The idea of endless torment is abhorrent to the modern Western sensibilities. It troubles many Christians as well as non Christians and has caused not a few in our day to look for some escape from the apparent meaning of these verses. Let us consider this matter carefully. We quite rightly train ourselves during this age to have a hopeful attitude toward even the most terrible sinner. We pray and hope for repentance. We learn to love our enemies. This viewpoint is appropriate during this age, but it does not fit the arena of the second coming. We must let God be God. He knows what he is doing when he displays mercy and when he displays justice. We must therefore take the teaching of Revelation seriously. We must reckon with the fact that God is indeed a God of justice and of the punishment of evil.